Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we followed a short-lived colony of Wessagusset, where one Thomas Weston ran afoul with the law, tried to get his way to the colony. Meanwhile, his colonists ran afoul with the natives, leading to absolute disaster. Well, if you did listen to the last episode, you'll know that Thomas Weston received a grant or a patent for that land from something called the Council for New England. Now, what is that? Well, it's probably the most undercovered, underrated organization um, in early American history that had a lot to do with the colonization of New England by the English, of course. If we were to follow the line of power all the way back to the 1560s and 1570s, the rights that the King of England handed out to monopolize, colonize, and use the resources of the East Coast of North America, these privileges found their way into the hands of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who died rather young, and were then given to his half-brother, Sir Walter Raleigh. Notice my pronunciation that goes out to one David Welker. Once Raleigh uh, found himself in deep trouble with the King of England, King James I, to be specific, these privileges were taken away, of course, and became the primary concern of what King James called the King's Council for Virginia, Virginia being a vague term for the East Coast of what is now the United States, more or less. On that council were Sir John Popham, Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous, and Lord Delaware, or Delaware. Their solution was to create two companies, one in the north, one in the south, with some overlapping latitudes to make sure to cover the gap, that would then have the secured rights, in the English sense, to settling the North American coast. Both companies would be called the Virginia Company, which is confusing and leads many to think that they were the same company with two branches, but they weren't. There was the Virginia Company of London and the Virginia Company of Plymouth. And as you can guess, the Virginia Company of Plymouth covered the northern section, the northern latitudes of this spread, whereas the Virginia Company of London covered the more southerly latitudes in and around where the former Roanoke colony shortly lived and disappeared. The Virginia Company of London, of course, founded in 1607, Jamestown. That's why this is a very important story. That very same year, the Virginia Company of Plymouth founded the Popham Colony. And you can listen to our episode on that. But Popham failed. And slowly with it, so did the Virginia Company of Plymouth. It began sliding into obscurity, a term I like to use right now. There were some bright moments when John Smith got involved in the exploration and the uh, promotion of settlement of what would become New England. He even named it New England to differentiate it from Virginia. But of course, all those ventures fell apart until one strange group of separatists, English in origin, of course, but who were living in the Netherlands, were looking for a place of refuge. Men like Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous were not sympathetic at all towards the separatist cause or even the Puritan cause, but he was desperate for bodies on the ground. People living there full time rather than the summer colonies that had grown up along the coast of Maine, which may have had some people over winter, but they were not communities. There was, there was no potential for growth, for people to be born. There were no families. This odd but new opportunity spurred the Virginia Company of Plymouth to become the Council for New England. Again, adopting the new name, New England, reorganizing itself, and uh, the king having moved up the latitudes of what this council could govern over by about three degrees or so to separate it from that Virginia Company of London, for which it was so often confused with. And so the council fell between 40 degrees and 48 degrees north latitude. And the grand plan, and this episode is all about the grand plan, was that between these latitudes, 
the various members of the council who paid their way in, were investors in a sense, would separate the land into chunks that would essentially be fiefdoms, very much in the English model, that would then be governed over by the council members from afar with a local government under their direct command, and that the whole area would be settled by polite, well-respected, well-behaved Anglicans, and that the Anglican church would establish its own ecclesiastical order over the entirety of New England. In that case, mistake number one was to settle the pilgrims there, the separatists of Leiden, who specifically did not want to be part of the Church of England. But Sir Ferdinand O'Gorgeous and the other investors thought that they would be crowded out by future immigrants to the colony. The peerless historian Johnny Pomfret says of this whole scheme, Gorgeous envisioned that this would be the first of many such settlements, all functioning under a central government with a governor general at its head. He, of course, is referring to Plymouth. But where is the governor general? Well, that's what this episode is about. And along with him, a vision of New England that is far different than anything that I ever learned about in school, and I bet anything that you ever learned about in school. The original composition of this Council for New England had Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous at the top, not surprisingly, as the president of the council, and then right under him, John Mason as secretary. You might know that name if you know anything about the history of New Hampshire. Hint, hint, wink, wink, future episode to come. Under them would be a number of other investors who would equal 40 in total, including Gorgeous and Mason, and they would essentially run from afar a proprietary government, meaning that the owners of the land also had the rights from the king to run the government. And that might be a new vocab term for a lot of people, because I can buy land right down the street from me here. I can't set up my own kingdom or municipality or police department there and make my own laws. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm allowed to buy the land, not set up a government. And so when you see a colony that is a proprietary colony or has a proprietary government, it means that those landowners do, in fact, have the right to not only sell the land, subdivide the land, they're also in charge of running the government. What becomes important here and right, right immediately applicable to your history book is that the colony of Plymouth falls within all of this. They're only legitimate right now because of the Council for New England. Their Mayflower Compact that they wrote, it has no validity to the Council for New England. The Council would have viewed it as a way of these people organizing themselves until proper order shows up. And if you read the Mayflower Compact, it implies the same point of view, although the settlers themselves would hope that that authority would, would never show up. But even they knew their compact was less than legitimate, at least in the eyes of English law and the council that gave them all the legitimacy that they had, which is actually surprisingly little. A further show of the dominance of the council for New England over the Plymouth settlers is that they imposed in the Plymouth patent a quit rent of two shillings per 100 acres after seven years. In other words, you have seven years to get your act together, but after that, you're going to have to start paying us what they called a quit rent, which is similar to the idea of rent because the colony is owned by proprietors, but it's also similar to just a property tax. But until that seven-year time, the Plymouth sellers were returning some amount of investment to the people who specifically financed their venture, but to their landowners, in a sense, the council, they were bringing in basically nothing, and were still exceedingly few in number. So around 1622, the Council for New England, uh, they debated the scheme they came up with to populate New England with a few skilled workers who would have many children indentured to them as apprentices. 
I mean, can you imagine a, a skilled fisherman being given like 40, 13-year-old boys in order to run a fishing operation somewhere off the, the coast of New England where the natives had been depopulated by a plague? It, it's just a recipe for disaster. It's a Lord of the Flies scenario. And it was uh, rejected. <laughs> so all good there. But moving into 1623, the Council for New England presents the king with a map of New England. And again, that went from 40 degrees north latitude to 48, so a little bit wider than the New England we know today. That was divided into subplots, 20 total, that would be given to a different member of the council or several members, however they wanted to work out the deal financially. That would be united under one government administered out of London, England at a distance. And to make up for that distance, a governor general would be sent over to New England to rule over everything in a position very similar to a viceroy, perhaps a little less powerful. But it would be a comparable position if this governor general had all the power of the council as a representative in the new world. Uh, the council in its 1620 charter was given all powers that we today would separate into a legislative, judicial and executive branch. So the governor general would have all of those abilities and every position in this governor general's government. I know that's confusing would be uh, done by appointment. In other words, the governor general or above him, the council themselves would have to appoint the entire composition of the government. This was this would definitely not be a democracy. Again, it's a throwback to a English system that's even older than the system that was in operation during the time of King James. Again, back to a feudal era of feudal estates, fiefdoms, whatever you want to call them or fiefs. I know some people don't like the word fiefdom. I like it. Going back to 1622. Robert Gorgeous, Sir Fernando's son, was made a lieutenant of the Council for New England. So now he's a representative of the council. In 1623, he was promoted to become the governor general of New England. And to usher in his new Anglican order would be Chaplain William Morrill, would be his right-hand man. There'd be another member of clergy along named William Blackstone, or Blackston, depending on the source. Both men will be very important to New England history. Adding to this, the council that Robert Gorgeous would have, the people appointed by the Council for New England to help him govern, would be Thomas Weston, who, again, we already know is in trouble, but that information doesn't travel very fast. So Thomas Weston was originally supposed to be one of the members of this council, running his colony out of Wessagusset, of course. A man by the name of Christopher Levitt, who was an agent for Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous and had fishing operations up the coast of Maine, and the governor of Plymouth. Whether he liked the new order or not, the governor of Plymouth would have to follow suit and become part of this greater order and make his own settlement subservient. There would be no Plymouth colony. The colony would be New England. Along with this organization and these new clergymen, he'd be bringing along some members of the gentry class, the gentlemen, one by the name of Samuel Maverick and another by the name of William Jeffries, who would, again, be important to New England history. And then under Robert, the authority at sea would be one Captain Francis West, and he received the title as Admiral of New England, quite lofty. He arrived in June of 1623 to the east coast of what would now be the United States and eventually to Plymouth before the rest of this new colonial operation were to show up. His job specifically were to hunt down fishing operations and determine if they had a license from the Council for New England or not. And if they did not, he would extract a fee from them by force if necessary. This was a job formerly held by one John Smith. This move by the council angered a lot of the fishermen who had been fishing 
off these coasts for generations without having to pay any sort of tax or fee or buy a license. And so that's the first crack in this plan here. Keep that in mind. It's going to show up again. The second crack came when Robert Gorgeous was just about ready to leave England. When he found out that Weston, this man he was supposed to lean on as one of his supports, a member of his council, had probably sold a cannon belonging to the council to a Turkish pirate. So he went from being a potential asset and ally to a fugitive and a problem and somebody he needed to track down. But the prospects were still hopeful, at least on the English side of things. He had about 120 colonists total, who probably came in two or three waves, including a lot of married couples. In other words, he was ready to create a population. Gorges arrived in Plymouth in September of 1623. Not a great time to start a colony. The fall in New England, but that's when he shows up. In the Plymouth records, they immediately recognize him as the governor. They call him the governor. His authority is without question. In fact, they should count themselves lucky that the Council for New England counted the local Plymouth governor as part of the hierarchy of this new government. So to make a modern parallel, Robert Gorgeous being the governor general of New England is kind of like a governor as we would know them today over a state. And then the governor of Plymouth would be more like a town mayor. And don't take that analogy too seriously. It'll fall apart. At Plymouth, Gorgeous discovers none other than Thomas Weston, who of course came by to check on his colony of Wessagusset, which as we learned in the last episode, ended in complete ruin. And so Weston at his lowest ebb, having spent the last year or so uh, hiding out, taking on disguises, finding his way to North America, is now in the hands of the governor general. Being invested with all judicial authority, Robert Gorgeous decides at this point to keep Weston at his side in a indentured servant state, confiscating his boat and other possessions for the council to compensate for that cannon he sold. And so for the rest of this episode, Weston is the unwilling sidekick of the governor general. One thing about the short episode that no author discusses that I know of, so I'm going to take credit for it, is that so quickly and, and in such a dominating nature, taking control of Thomas Weston, in Plymouth no less, was a power move, and it showed the power of the governor general. Remember, Weston was one of the main financiers and organizers uh, behind the Plymouth colony. He arranged for the funding for all of these separatists to show up in the New World. He was a man that they thought was quite powerful himself. In fact, the year before, when Weston started sending random colonists to Plymouth and demanding that they take care of those new colonists, the Plymouth colonists did so, at least to some extent. They listened to him. And now, here's the governor general just taking him on as a pet. Now, Robert Gorges's personal patent engrossed about 300 square miles of the New England coast. Most of the sources make the point of saying that the Wessagusset colony did not fall within those 300 square miles. But again, showing his power to the people of Plymouth at the expense of Weston, Gorgeous decided to set up the capital of New England at Weston's former Wessagusset site, which already had a blockhouse building there. But if you remember the last episode, the relations with the natives were terrible, with the Massachusetts tribe particularly, were just awful, and Miles Standish had to show up there, rescue the colonists, and end the conflict with an obscene amount of violence. And yet, when Gorgeous shows up, the natives have seemed to retreat from the area. They aren't around very much. And so, Robert Gorgeous does not have problems with these same natives. At the same time, he doesn't get much cooperation from them either. They're not around. There's no one to trade with. The central component 
to running this colony is bringing in revenue. Gorgias did not take very long settling in before he traveled up the coast to meet his underlings, who would be a part of the new government of what we would now call the main coast, while also summoning representatives from Plymouth. Together, somewhere towards the end of 1623, I believe, they hold a meeting at Little Harbor, and they form the government for New England. Gorgias, taking the title of Lieutenant General or Governor General, Francis West would be Admiral of New England, as we mentioned before. Christopher Levitt would take the title of a counselor. David Thompson, another main representative, would be a counselor. Two men from Plymouth would then be counselors. So you could see the layers. And then again, Reverend Morrill would be the superintendent for the establishment of the Church of England. Fancy title. Plymouth would find itself subjugated. And closing out this year, 1623, of the 90 or so people that come into Plymouth Harbor, only about 30 of them were of their group, separatists, nonconformist types. The isolation they desired was quickly disappearing to make matters worse for the men of Plymouth. November 5th, 1623, the Great Plymouth Fire. Burns over much of the village, and of course the men of Plymouth blame all these strangers, these outsiders, these people who followed Gorgias or are passing through from a nearby fishing colony. From the English side of our story, this was a low point for Plymouth. If you listen to the last episode that we know as far as the relations between the natives, especially the Wampanoag and the men of Plymouth, they had reached a high point. And this is something the Plymouth settlers always had in their back pocket against the Governor General Robert Gorgias. They knew the natives very well, especially the Wampanoag, as I said, and they've already had agreements with them. Maybe, just maybe, if they waited. All this new authority, this new order, this ecclesiastical imperative, God willing, maybe it would all just go away. Well, let's see how Robert Gorgias is dealing with a New England winter for the first time. Here's a quote from the wonderful historian Charles Francis Adams. The waters were covered with ice, and the woods were impassable with snow. And so Robert Gorgias got through the long winter as best he could, probably cursing John Smith for a liar. If you remember, John Smith wrote a book to promote settlement of New England and dispel the myth that came out of the Popham colony that New England was this frozen hellscape, instead that it was a temperate area comparable to the countryside of England. Robert Gorgias did not get that impression. That's the takeaway from the entire winter of 1623-24. Not a lot of detail there, but the point is made. In the spring of 1624, Gorgias goes up the coast north to visit the fishing stations in Maine. He uses his little captive buddy, Thomas Weston, as his pilot and uses his ship. He finds Christopher Levitt, one of his counselors, who had a letter from England that was sent over in one of the fishing ships. It was a letter from his father, Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, president of the Council for New England, telling him that, unfortunately, the funding to install this great new feudal order over New England has fallen through. As it so happens, a lot of the fishermen had been protesting the collecting of licenses from Admiral West, and in general protesting the fact that they would have to purchase a license legitimately. Funds that everyone had taken for granted were not coming in. To make matters worse, the organized fishing operations that operated out of the uh, English city of Bristol were actually petitioning members of parliament in protest 
and wanting to examine what this Council for New England was all about, whether they indeed had the power to levy such taxes and licenses. And so it wasn't so much a lack of revenue. Of course, there was that. It was the questioning of their legitimacy. This would begin scaring away investors from the council in total. What all of this amounts to is that Ferdinando basically told his son, you're on your own. This is what you have. You have what has already been sent over. Don't expect anything else anytime soon. Now you can see the wheels turning in Robert's mind. He's going over his options, what to do, what to do. Very similar thing happened at the end of the Popham Colony, by the way, if you go back and listen to that. Bradford at Plymouth wrote that Robert Gorgeous ultimately abandoned these grand plans because not finding the state of things here to answer to his quality and condition, he packed up and left. Bradford's submission was right. Without additional help coming and people to rule over, essentially, getting down to the nitty-gritty work was going to fall to him and his council and the few colonists he did have. Robert Gorgeous was not willing to do that. He found himself above this kind of work, the odd thought today. But having to not do manual labor or physical work was seen as a source of pride by the upper classes, hence why they would consider themselves gentlemen, right? Soft hands not used to work. That was a source of pride. And so he planned on going back to England. It was over. And who wanted to go with him? Everybody else of high rank. But he leaves Reverend William Morrill in charge of Wessagusset and the poorer settlers who he had no intention of bringing back with him. What complicates the matter for them is that he did not hand over ownership of Wessagusset, which he most likely didn't own anyway, but rather gave them the ability to govern themselves until some new order comes into play. To the relief of the people of Plymouth, Reverend William Morrill, as now the new governor of the small settlement, abandoned his mission to become the organizer of the Anglican Church over New England. The separatists would have their day. One last person he took with him back to England was Thomas Weston, his little buddy. And Weston, as we know from the last episode, was a charming fellow. He was a shyster. He was a snake. He was good with words. And by the time they get to England, Robert Gorgeous releases him on his own word. Just lets him go. After this point, Weston seemingly lives an entirely new life lives for many more years. Good luck to him. But back in New England, the cooperation of the men from Plymouth, as small as it was, gave a little more legitimacy to their standing, at least in the eyes of the council. It also legitimized the uh, people in Maine who participated in Robert Gorgeous's government, reaffirming their loyalty to Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous in particular. But then the council still had that admiral at sea, Admiral West. What happened to him? The admiral of New England. Well, Bradford writes of Captain West, He was to restrain interlopers in such fishing ships as come to fish and trade without a license for the council for New England, for which they should pay a round sum of money. But he could do no good of them, for they were too strong for him, and he found the fishermen to be stubborn fellows. The admiral could not collect enough in licenses to make his position viable to the council. And just like that, the English in New England revert back to their local, unofficial governments. And what of Wessagusset and all of its ups and downs? Well, the new governor, Reverend William Morrill, he spends the time mostly writing poetry, hanging out. He's not one for government at this point. And then slowly he drifts away from the colony. The other reverend, Reverend Blackston, he would drift away to the future site of Boston, and he would choose to live some distance from any other Englishman. He could be called out of the wilderness, 
to do a chore or a task or some paid job for the gorgeous family, but otherwise lived in relative isolation. The author Alexander Corbet writes of Blackston, living alone in future Boston, The blueberry and blackberry bushes that covered Beacon Hill helped to supply his frugal table, as did wild strawberries and grapes, which were close at hand in their season, while the wild roses through which he wandered whenever he went abroad would permeate his little cuddy house with delightful fragrance. It is thought he tried to gently convert some of the local natives, provided religious services to the scattered Englishmen living in small hamlets, having been banished or running away from Plymouth. He came to not be an Anglican nor a Puritan nor a Separatist, just a loner, having no taste for authority anymore, or even the power of the people. And so it was quite shocking one day when an armada of ships showed up off the coast, carrying the colonists that would be the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Company, very quickly becoming many times larger than the uh, colony at Plymouth. Blackston found his isolation ruined and moved on, settling in the area of Rhode Island before even Roger Williams shows up. Another Wessagusset man named Thomas Walford, after 1625 or so, wanders away again to the greater Boston area, does some fur trading, and again, when these stingy Puritans show up, the Massachusetts Bay colonists, he finds himself banished before the likes of Anne Hutchinson or Jonathan Wheelwright and ends up in the area of New Hampshire. Yet another Wessagusset man, Samuel Maverick, stays in the area, lives a long life, helps in the taking of New Netherland many decades later, and becomes one of the major opponents to the Puritan establishment. So we will see Maverick again in this season. What is important here from all these castaways is they will make up the core, or at least the earliest representatives, of what the Massachusetts Bay colonists will call the Old Planters, who are English people who are in the vicinity of Boston in the greater Massachusetts Bay Colony before the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They had far better relations with the natives, and they became the vanguard for those opposed to Puritanism in the New World. But what of Wessagusset itself? Well, from the time of Robert Gorgeous, Wessagusset remained an occupied site. And so this is not a failed colony, just one that continued to evolve. By the year 1630, in the coming of this Massachusetts Bay Company, Wessagusset is being run by two men by the name of William Jeffries and John Bursley, and is known collectively as their plantation. By the year 1635, it is absorbed into the Massachusetts Bay Colony, peacefully, where it is inundated by new families from England, and it is renamed Weymouth. That's right, one tangible, lasting legacy of this second Wessagusset colony is the modern city, the great and wonderful city of Weymouth, Massachusetts. But as for the Council for New England and Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous, this was a massive failure and a pitiful end for a grand vision. As Sir Fernando Gorgeous said in 1608, when the Popham colony fell apart, all our dreams have been frozen to death. Now here we are in 1624, Sir Ferdinando writes that the Council for New England is a carcass in a manner breathless. But tune in next time and we'll see what these old planters were doing before the Massachusetts Bay Company showed up, living in their own independent colonies. Thank you for listening. I'm Eric Yanis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. <laughs>